Welcome to The Q Word, a podcast about the tips, trends, and taboos of emergency nursing, where we pull the hospital curtain back on issues that emergency nurses and their patients often think about but seldom talk about. You found The Q Word Podcast. This episode is sponsored by the Region 5 RTAC and the Georgia Trauma Commission. As part of the state of Georgia's trauma system, EMS Region 5's Regional Trauma Advisory Committee works to improve trauma outcomes in central Georgia. The RTAC is composed of EMS agencies, participating hospitals, trauma system stakeholders, and members of the public. Welcome back, Nisa, to the second episode of our special Trauma Populations series of Q-Word podcast episodes. That's right. Today we're talking pediatric trauma patients. Yes, this is stage two. We talked about pregnancy last time, and now we are talking about the little nugget that just came out. Yeah, and this is a very dense topic. There's so much information. One of the reasons is because we're talking from birth to... What? To what? 18? What is the cutoff for pediatrics? Yeah, it's a really important question. So if you ask my state's pediatric level one trauma center, they will tell you 14. So in our state, we consider the cutoff for trauma, specifically pediatric trauma at age 14. So anything above 14, we can take to an adult center because in general, they are large enough to be treated and physiologically can be treated as an adult. But you should check with your local area hospitals and see because that varies. It's not standardized. Uh, In general, it would be somewhere around there, 14, 15, even 16 in some areas. If if your cutoff is 14, but you get a very, very, very tiny 15-year-old, would you be able to make the executive decision to bring them to a pediatric ward, or would they be like, nope, can't come here? Um, I mean, I could try, I could make the argument and it would just be up to, you know, it would be up to them. Would it be a question of not having the proper equipment for people of different small, small, tiny sizes? No, they, they would be equipped to do that. Okay. And sometimes, you know, sometimes in the field, you don't have an age on the child. Sometimes you don't have identification, you don't have an age, so you have to make a best guess. Okay. Um, and I, I do want to be clear and say that this does not apply to medical patients. This is only for trauma. Okay. So, um, there are some could... This is I find this very fascinating, and I hope that you will too, but there are some congenital childhood acquired or congenitally acquired conditions that pediatric centers treat well into adulthood or for the lifetime of the patient, so 20s and 30s. So this is specifically to do with trauma. So, um, so for our considerations, we're going to say 14 because that is what my level one trauma, pediatric trauma center in my state considers the cutoff. So for our purposes today, we will say 14. But again, check with your local area and your local facilities to see what they consider the cutoff for pediatric trauma. Okay. So I know you told me in advance that this episode is going to be very dense, that there's a lot of factoids coming at you. So what I'm going to make my primary goal in this episode is to ask you as we go through how these things would be assessed differently if we're talking about, let's say, a four-month-old or a four-year-old or a 14-year-old. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So we'll try that as a... See how it breaks down. All right. So we start with the epidemiology, right? I'm going to take a guess. Um, Motor vehicle crashes must be the first, uh, the primary cause of pediatric trauma. 
right? It is. It is number one. That's right. And so what's interesting about MVCs in the pediatric population is the number one cause of death in children of all ages, if you include them as occupant, pedestrian, and cyclist versus uh, the, the vehicle. Uh, not only that, if you take all causes of pediatric deaths, all other causes of pediatric deaths, MVCs is still number one. If you put everything else that kills children together, MVCs is still number one. Now, remember, if we're counting pediatric trauma as 14 and below, that means we're not counting teenage drivers because 14-year-olds don't drive. So um, this is a huge, huge issue for children. Wow, that's amazing. So other issues that impact children are things like drownings, house fires, uh, homicides, and falls. And they follow in that order. But again, far and away, it's motor vehicle collisions. I'm not sure if that makes me, if, if I'm relieved that it's not any of the others. <laughs> well, what I want to emphasize is buckle up your children, get appropriate car seats that are appropriately installed, uh, make sure your children who are bike riders are wearing helmets. Helmets, for goodness sake. I see children and parents riding through Boston without helmets on, and it drives me so crazy. Okay, so that's Sorry. our epidemiology. Now, let's talk about the A, B, C, D, E's, which is right. all of the assessment tools and the interventions. That's um, right. I am going to start off by saying I don't pick up children because they have massive heads like watermelons on tiny little fully cooked pieces of angel hair pasta that flop around all over. So I'm going to guess that that makes a airway assessment in little kids, like maybe toddlers and younger, really difficult. Right. So, so you're talking about the little bitty kids with these giant uh, heads. So their heads are much, much bigger proportionally to their bodies when they are babies and toddlers. So, and, and even really small children, like school-age children. So what happens when you lay them flat on a stretcher or especially on a long spine board is their chins go down like this. Mm, she's demonstrating it, her chin down into her chest. This is not a visual medium, Misa. But you, but you get it, right, when you hear me? That's true. So it, it occludes their airway. <laughs> so it's really important for the airway, just by laying them flat, you are occluding their airway and not doing them any favors. So what you're going to do is you're going to put them in what's called a neutral sniffing position. Mm. And one of the ways that we can do that is you're going to pad underneath their shoulders. And that's going to naturally lift up their head and support their neck. Um, you are still going to put them in an appropriately sized C-collar, mm -hmm. um, and you can use neck rolls that you create with washcloths or towels, depending on the size of the child. Um, one interesting hack that I learned is if the child is wearing diapers, if they're diaper age children, if you take one of the diapers, the size that the child wears and roll it up, it's the perfect size to go under those shoulders and lift them up into that nice sniffing position and open up their airway. How interesting. A clean diaper, presumably. Yes, please. Not a worn one. Very good. Their um, tongue is also disproportionately large, which means that it's going to predispose them to blocking their uh, their airway if they are not able to control it. So uh, pay attention to the tongue. The pediatric airway is funnel shaped, whereas the adult airway is just a cylinder. Oh, like a like a like a toilet paper roll or something or a paper towel roll. That's right. So. Kids' airway is funnel-shaped. This is problematic because the narrowest part of the airway is where all of their secretions, or if they've been in a trauma, blood or vomit, 
uh, will it will settle in that narrowest part. So that makes them at risk for aspiration, micro aspiration, um, which will develop into pneumonia. Ooh, okay. Uh, that will be a consideration for intubation. So that's for providers. So if you are moving that big floppy tongue out of the way using an oral airway, we have these hard plastic oral airways that we can insert to displace a tongue. In an adult, we're going to put it in and then we're going to turn it 180 degrees. In kids, their soft palate is underdeveloped and you can damage it if you do that 180 sweep move. Right. So we don't do that with children. So what you're going to do is you're going to use a tongue depressor to move that tongue down and just slide it in directly. Mm -hmm. The other thing that you can use, and that's probably preferred and more realistic, you're going to have the suction catheter right there, either your Yonker mm -hmm. or uh, the Ducanto catheter, which is the one that I love. Mm. Um, if you're not using a Ducanto catheter in your trauma bay yet, get one. Mm. Um, it's much bigger lumen. It's much better in a trauma patient. Let's put that Ducanto catheter on that tongue and put the oral airway directly in so that you don't damage the soft palate of the pediatric patient. Gotcha. Okay. All right. If you're preparing to RSI your patient, if you're um, intubating a baby who is less than one year of age, you're, you need to pre-treat with atropine oh. so that you don't cause bradycardia. The idea of giving drugs to a, to a baby is just so... Obviously, this is for life-saving measures, but it, it, it sounds so um, wrong. And terrifying. Yes. And so that's a really important point that you bring up. Pediatric patients oftentimes really scare uh, trauma teams, and especially trauma teams that don't do it very frequently. Um, and so this is even more reason to um, study up, listen to this episode multiple times, right. make notes, familiarize yourself with this, um, because it can be a really scary time. It's like you said, children are supposed to be out playing and running and not in the trauma bay getting intubated. Right. And just the emotional connection uh, to, to children, that, that sense of protectiveness that uh, I think everyone that I know at least naturally has, it, it's got to ramp up the anxiety about, about treating such a such a precious, uh, tiny, young, tender life. That's right. It's, That's right. it's scary. And when we give drugs, um, especially RSI drugs, we base them on weight, even for adults. When we base them on weight for children, there's not a lot of room for error. So that's an extra added stressor. So we're going to use our length-based tapes. Those are our resources that we use. There are also a lot of excellent apps out there. So we're, you know, we're moving more digital and less analog. So there are apps that you can use. The trauma bay where the baby is laying there needing an airway is not the time to download an app or use it for the first time. This needs to be something you've run in a sim lab. This needs to be something you've played with ahead of time. But so your drugs are weight-based. You want to use those reference guys that you have familiarized yourself with ahead of time. As you're choosing your tube size, we talked about it's going to be very different for a four-month-old versus a four-year-old versus a 14-year-old. Um, you can use those references like your app or your length-based tape. But another quick and dirty way to do it is to look at the size of their pinky. That's roughly the size of their airway, as is the size of their nair, which is the medical word for their nostril. <laughs> okay, so wait. So, oh, oh, wait. You said the pinky or the nostril? So is that why your pinky fits up your nostril so much? Asking for a friend. It's <laughs> probably why kids can pick their noses with their fingers. So I hadn't thought of it that way, but that's probably exactly why. Right, look at that. I just figured it out. 
So let's say that we've now determined using our pinky nair um, guide the ET tube size, and we have successfully intubated our child, our sm- small little child. It should be called the nose picking guide. The nose picking guide. I okay. think I think you should make it a thing. All right, we'll see. All nurses listening. We'll see what the RTAC thinks of that. <laughs> so when um, when we have our child intubated, keep in mind their airways are so short that one centimeter of movement with that ET tube can mean the difference between being intubated still or being extubated. So we have very little play in that airway, unlike an adult patient. So moving them from the ER stretcher to the CT table or from the ER stretcher to the PICU bed, or if they wake up a little and start moving their head around, they can very, very easily extubate themselves. So their intubation status needs to be monitored very, very closely. And the gold standard is using waveform capnography. The reason is because waveform capnography gives you real-time information about whether that child is still intubated by giving you a number Uh and a waveform. So it gives you two different pieces of information that tells you that that child is still intubated right now. A chest x-ray is great. It confirms tube placement for the moment that the chest x-ray was taken and that moment only. Mm. As soon as they pull that um, radiograph out from under Mm -hmm. the kid and walk away, that chest x-ray is no longer any good. That kid wakes up and moves around it's no longer valid. But as long as you have waveform capnography continuous, you know whether your kid is intubated or not. That's great. So it just keeps a continuous confirmation basis going. That's correct. Interesting. Okay. Um, One thing to remember when a provider is intubating a pediatric patient, especially a young pediatric patient, because of their anatomy, there is a risk for right mainstem intubation. That right mainstem if you intubate too deeply, it's kind of a super highway right into that right bronchus. And so when you listen to long sounds, if you hear them only on the right side, they may be just a little bit too deep. So that tube may need to be pulled back just a touch, but don't miss a pneumothorax because of that. So rule out right mainstem versus pneumothorax. And that is very common in the pediatric population, not as common in the adult population. So your provider has intubated your child and you are verifying with by auscultation. You're going to listen over the epigastrum as you would in an adult with the expectation of absence of sounds. Now you're going to listen mid-axillary first rather than mid-clavicular because even especially in the, the smaller the child, you would risk hearing referred lung sounds if you listen mid-clavicular. So you're going to listen mid-axillary on both sides first, and then you will go mid-clavicular in all of your lung fields. Okay. So now that we finished with airway, we get to talk about breathing, right? See, I'm learning. Yes. So how do we assess their breathing and then tell me whether or not it's different for our four-month-old, four-year-old, or 14-year-old? So for breathing, one of the things, and this is really for all your assessments, it's really important to know the difference in vital signs between a four-month-old, a four-year-old, and a 14-year-old. Got it. So a four-month-old is not going to be breathing 15 times a minute. If they are, then you need to assist their breathing. A four-month-old is going to be breathing something like 35 times or 40 times a minute, and it needs to be something that is counted for a full 60 seconds also needs to be something that you count with no clothes on. So infants breathe very, very fast. The smaller they are, the faster they breathe. A four-year-old similarly is going to breathe 25 times a minute. 
So it's important to have a rudimentary knowledge of the difference in vital signs between the ages and what's normal and what's very abnormal. Okay. Again, breathing 50 times a minute for a four-month-old is abnormal and should cause concern as well. Okay. Children's ribs are very cartilaginous, so they're quite flexible. It takes a very high force to break ribs in a pediatric patient, whereas in a geriatric patient, it takes almost no force to break ribs. Um, So what that means is children can have very significant damage to their lungs. They can have significant pulmonary contusions with no rib fractures. So don't assume because they don't have fractures that there's no underlying injuries. Interesting. I thought you were going to say that if a child had a broken rib, it would be indicative of far more damage to the lungs or the underlying organs. Is that also the case? Yes, yes, because it takes a really high force. Okay. Whereas, right. uh, whereas a geriatric person, which I'm sure you'll teach me about later, if they have a broken rib, they could have just sneezed wrong. That's right. Okay. And That's it might right. not necessarily mean that they, that they did some major damage below it. Right. Okay. All right. We'll get to the geriatrics in a couple of episodes. Okay, great. What else should we look forward to? Or what else should we look out for? In babies, particularly, some of the things that are um, indicators of difficulty breathing are things like nasal flaring or grunting or head bobbing. Those are things that babies do that older children or adults don't do. And that means that they're having trouble breathing. Correct. Okay. Right. Um, When you are bagging a child... um, Again, you you talked about how stressful it is when you're treating a a little kid and how unnatural it is. And so sometimes we get our own adrenaline pumping. And so we are just squeezing away at that bag um, and you may be uh, overfilling their lungs and that can cause barotrauma. It also fills up their bellies, which is complicating what you're doing. So when you are bagging them, what you're doing is you're just titrating that bagging to chest rise. So you just want to bag... Uh, squeeze the bag enough to where you see their chest rising. That's how you know you are bagging enough. Okay. And because you, when you bag them, there is some of the air is going to go into their belly. You want to drop an orogastric or a nasogastric tube early and decompress. First, you're going to pull out the chicken nuggets and the macaroni and cheese that they just ate, but you're also going to pull out all that air that you are inadvertently pumping into their belly as well. That belly is going to push up on their diaphragm, which is pushing up on their lungs and making it more difficult for you. So do yourself a favor and go ahead and put in an OGNG tube early on and decompress their belly. Okay, got it. How did you know what I had for dinner? it's always nuggets and mac and cheese (laughs) you gotta love them (laughs) let's talk about circulation in kids let's talk about circulation in kids so here's the thing about kids their bodies are brand new all of their organs are in tip-top condition and so kids are very very resilient their bodies are very very strong Um, they can compensate very very well right up until they don't. With adults, oftentimes what happens is they uh, are trucking along and then they give you a hint that they're decompensating and then they give you another hint that they're decompensating and then they give you another hint and they are kind of going down Lombard Street down to their code. They deteriorate. Right. And they do it in a... uh, step-by-step kind of fashion. Kids compensate and compensate and compensate and compensate, and then they fall off the cliff. Ooh, scary. That's right. 
So um, they're going to hang in and hang in and hang in and hang in, and then they're going to code. So there, there are actually very, very subtle clues that they're giving you um, that you probably are missing. Adults give you big clues, mm. big hints, big things. Kids are giving you tiny little subtle ones, and I'm going to teach you what those are so that hopefully you can assess for those, you can pick up on those, and you find them before they fall off that cliff. Okay. All right. Hit us. So... One of the biggest ones is heart rate. Heart rate is one of the only ways that they can compensate. So it's important for you to know along the developmental continuum that we talked about, four months versus four years versus 14 years, mm -hmm. what is the normal heart rate on those kids? There's lots of charts out there. You need to have a good idea in your head. If you don't, look it up when you have that kid in front of you in the trauma bay mm -hmm. and know what is the normal for this kid. Um, is this kid stressing out and heartbeat is running 180 and, and you need to be doing some interventions? It might be your only clue. Some of the other subtle clues are going to be their skin color. Is it pale? Is it mottled? Is it cool? Is it clammy? And then another really good one is cap refill. So Lisa, if you touch your finger and you put some pressure on your fingertip, that pink part of your finger will turn white mm -hmm. and then it will go back to pink. The amount of time that it takes is your capillary refill, and it should be less than two seconds. We like to check that on kids, and that talks about your peripheral perfusion status, right? That's as far as your uh, blood flow is from your heart, okay. the very tips of your fingers and your toes. Mm. Um, if it's delayed, if it's three seconds, five seconds, that talks about your circulation status, and it, it will tell us some important information. Just as a, an adult who's always worrying about her health uh, does that work on me too absolutely oh, cool interesting sure does. i'll continue to press my fingernail down on a regular basis and make sure that i'm circulating <laughs> properly the other uh really good clue that kids will give you is their um their mental status so this is really really important for you to know developmental stages right? So you need to know what is the normal mental status for a four-month-old, and that's pretty tricky and pretty subtle. We're going to talk about that more when we get to D in just a second. So a kid will lose 30% of their blood volume before their blood pressure will ever drop. Wow. That's, yeah, by the time that their blood pressure becomes hypotensive, your patient is pre-code. They are already peri-arrest. In order to figure out a normal blood pressure for a kid, it's going to be 90 plus two times their age in years. Okay. So if you have a, our four-year-old, a normal blood pressure for them would be 90 plus two times their age in years. So eight. So 98 should be our uh, little four-year-old's systolic blood pressure hypotension is 70 plus two times their age in years okay. or anything below that. So for our four-year-old, 78 systolic or anything below that is hypotension. And you need to be quickly doing some interventions. Okay. She needs fluid bolus, fluid bolus, fluid bolus. Okay. Um, small children and infants, you're going to check pulses, peripheral pulses at the brachial artery. That's not something we do in adults. That's their, right here. Their wrist is not, or... Uh... That's right. Okay, it's not so going to give a, a stronger artery. Got it. If your child is bradycardic, that means their heart rate is dropping. This is a very ominous sign. Mm -hmm. If it's paired with that hypotension, your child is in impending arrest. Oof, okay. 
Um, access in children's very hard to get on a good day. It's even harder when they are hypotensive or hypoxic or bradycardic or in your trauma bay. So we love the IO in children. A new site that was just approved for pediatrics is the distal femur. Okay. So this is a nice big bone. It's the largest bone in the body. So that interosseous needle will seat very, very well in the femur. It's a great place to do um, volume resuscitation. So learn about that one if you haven't used it yet. Okay. Uh, One thing that's really important in the trauma bay for children that's not as important in adults is to assess a blood glucose. Mm. Children don't have the um, glucose storage that adults do. They deplete it very quickly when they're in hypermetabolic states. Mm. So you want to assess for a blood sugar in the trauma bay. Okay. And then when you're giving fluid boluses to the children, it's 20 mils per kilo. When you get to your second fluid bolus on a kid, you need to be thinking blood. If you're thinking blood, it's 10 mils per kilo. Okay. You've given us a lot of, already with this particular episode, you've given us some formulas and some numbers and some rules of thumb. Maybe we'll, uh, shall we throw those up on the, on the website so that people can use those for reference Um, You should definitely do your own investigation, but we will provide you with uh, some of the hard science facts and rules of thumb that Nisa has provided us in this episode on the keywordpodcast.com. You can find it on the episode page for this episode then. Yeah, we'll include the formulas, we'll include the mnemonics, and I'll also include my two favorite pediatric apps. Ooh, I love it. I love an app. Good apps. So we have any Ds to consider. Disability. Yes. So I've mentioned a few times that you need to know some basic developmental milestones, basic developmental stages. And I just wanted to tell you a story about an example of that. So we had a 16 month old who was involved in an MVC. Mm-hmm. Um, she was rolling into the trauma bay. She was on a kind of a papoose style long spine board. Mm-hmm. Um, so you have this very young toddler who is strapped onto a long spine board, Mm -hmm. a very hard plastic spine board. Um, She is rolling in without a mommy or a daddy or a grandma Mm. into a trauma bay full of strangers wearing very strange clothing who are coming at her and trying to poke her and prod her, some of them with needles. And she is laying there with her big brown eyes open, looking at all of us. And the provider assigned her a Glasgow coma scale of 15, which is normal. Okay. Now, if you have ever been around a 16-month-old, you know that a 16-month-old who is normal should be screaming their head off and using every ounce of every bit of energy that they have to try to squirm and wiggle and kick and scream and spit and bite their way out of that papoose get out of there screaming for their mommy, doing anything that they can to get out of that scenario. So when that person assigns them a GCS of 15, that tells me they don't understand or haven't been around a 16-month-old. So it's really important to know some developmental stages and understand what is normal for this particular age child in order to know something's not right about this child because... They're not acting like a normal 16-month-old would. So that's just an example that, um, that I can come up with of why it's important to know the difference in, um, in what to expect in the different stages. Okay. So just a few other tidbits under disability. Um, the Glasgow Coma Scale does have a modification for young children. Mm-hmm. So that's something you can pull up on your pediatric app if you need to, to, to just be able to um, grade children out on the GCS scale. 
There are other two other considerations. Infants, young infants that still have the soft spot on their head. It's called the font. This is why I do not pick up children. I do not pick <laughs> up children. I ask their parents. I'm like, they still have the fontanelle? Has that thing like sealed up yet? Then no, I don't want to touch it. You, yeah. no, you keep your baby. That's fine. Well, in the medical community, we kind of like it because it's a window into what's happening in there. It's oh. like a little cheat. So we know that if it's sunken in, that that's a sign of dehydration. Oh. And we know that if it's bulging, that's a sign of um, intracranial pressure. So don't forget that that fontanelle is kind of a hint as to what's happening in there. Um, so it, it actually gives us some clues that older children and adults, it won't give us. So don't forget to assess the fontanelle in younger children. That's an important disability marker. Wow. And then there's a there's a unique um, a unique phenomenon in children called sclera, and this is one of the mnemonics that I will put up on the website. And it's um, when a child comes in and they have what appears to be a spinal cord injury, so they can't feel or move from the neck down or from the nipple line down. You take them to the CT scanner, but there's no spinal cord injury on the CT scan. So um, we call this a score, which stands for spinal cord injury without radiographic abnormality. So that's the mnemonic. Um, and this is actually a ligamentous injury, and it is confirmed by, t by MRI. You still treat them as though it as a spinal cord injury. So they still need to remain in spinal precautions. You continue to keep the spinal cord uh, or the C-collar on, and they need to go to either a pediatric trauma center or a spinal uh, spine center that can handle pediatric patients. Uh, so this is an injury that is specific to children. Any other disability considerations? Or any other special considerations? So special considerations. Um, like all of our special populations, if uh, this patient that's come to you, to your facility, is not something that you have the capabilities to treat, then consider transfer early. Um, find a facility that will accept them and has the capabilities to treat them and the special resources to treat them. Go ahead and get them involved early on in the care of this patient. Consult with them and get acceptance and arrange for um, transfer um, early. I think that probably parents need to be around as well. I mean, we've talked about the child kind of in isolation, but I mean, they've got to have their parents with them, right? Right. And so you know that one of my favorite things is family presence. Yes. Um, I've talked about it a lot during code blue scenarios, but family presence in the trauma bay is really important, even when there's not a code going on, when there's just a resuscitation. In the pediatric population, it's it's really, really key. So um, younger children, school-aged children, it doesn't matter. Family can be really, really helpful. Um, keeping them in the loop, keeping them informed, they can help you with the care of the children, child. They can help you calming the child. Um, certainly they can help you with things like past medical history. So yes, bringing the family in is very, very important. Having them at the bedside is very important. Just to keep them calm, for goodness sake. I mean, yes, yes. Wow. Um, also with the pediatric population, if you have child life at your facility, then that is, you're very, very lucky and getting child life involved, um, before the child has even arrived, as soon as you know you have a pediatric patient, having child life in the trauma bay is um, is great for the kid. If you don't have child life, my favorite is distraction therapy. So some simple, simple, very cheap things that you can have, uh, bubbles, some books, uh, stickers, 
anything that you can have that can distract the child from the things that are going on in this crazy, busy, loud uh, trauma bay are great. Um, I remember bringing a very, very small child into a very loud uh, trauma bay in a very busy metropolitan trauma center. And the kid's crying, and she's got a very significant injury, and she's probably in a lot of pain. And the resident pulled, uh, clearly, clearly had a kid this age at home because he pulled out his cell phone out of his pocket and popped on a video of uh, Dora the Explorer or um, uh, Masha and the Bear or whatever the hot thing was at that day and put it right in front of her. And she immediately was distracted and immediately was quiet. And um, they were able to assess her and she was immediately distracted. And he was the hero of the day and the genius. And why had I not thought of that? (laughs) (laughs) Because as a parent, you've been trying very hard to make sure that your kids are not always locked onto their devices. Because I have older kids and and it's been too long since I had a kid that age. But listen, I only had to see him do that once. And now I bring it out every time. There you go. (laughs) Um, Such a genius. So something that simple will sometimes work wonders, much better than fentanyl or morphine. That's good. If I ever see a child in distress, I I have Disney Plus on my phone, so I know exactly what to do. That's right. Sometimes that's just the trick (laughs) or distraction. Mm -hmm. The other thing that I wanted to point out as a special consideration is when you're considering the mechanism of injury with a child, something that would only injure one part of me or one one part of you, because the child is so small and compact, it may injure two or three organs in them. So that's something to consider. Um, and, and remember, when you're assessing the small little compact kid, Got it, it. Can be a, it can be devastating to them, something that would have just not done much to you or me or only injure one thing. So when it comes to child maltreatment, um, how does that factor in? So non-accidental trauma is something that trauma teams need to be aware of. So if you suspect non-accidental trauma, um, we are mandated reporters. So what you'll need to do is obtain details about the incident. So wait, non-accidental trauma. I'm sorry, I got to call you on that. That's just code for abuse, child abuse. Is that correct? It's going to call it what it is. That's right. So non-accidental trauma, um, you will obtain details of the incident. You'll obtain details of the injuries. Uh, In the United States, you don't have to be able to prove anything. You just have to have a suspicion um, and report it. It's up to the experts to do the research and and collect evidence and and do the proving. Mm -hmm. You do need to familiarize yourself with your local processes. Um, Another important point that I want to make is don't assume that the other people did it. Don't assume that EMS before you did it. Don't assume that the pediatric trauma center or the burn center after you will do it. Don't assume that the PICU nurse will do it or that the ER nurse did it. That is how children fall through in the system. Uh, And, you know, they don't have a voice. We have to be the voice for them. So there's nothing wrong with five different people reporting that they think this child may have been abused. That's correct. And and some other interesting points are uh, it doesn't have to be a- abuse. It could be neglect. It can be neglect. So if you see evidence of neglect, so so someone comes in in a in a in a car accident, but you see evidence of neglect. For instance, the car seat that they were in was completely the inappropriate size, or they come in and close that are the wrong season or we're filthy or whatever, neglect is really important to report as well. 
children who are at high risk for um, non-accidental trauma are infants and children with special needs. So those are ones that you really want to look out for. Mm. That just breaks my heart. How, what kind of things uh, are suspicious? Like what would trigger you to make a report? So some of the things, and, there, and there's a whole bunch of them, just, just off the top, what some of the things that might cause suspicion would be if the report of what happened in the accident are not consistent with the injuries that you see, uh, if they sought care long after the accident happened, if they went a long way away from where the accident happened, so they bypassed multiple hospitals to get to your hospital. You see evidence of older bruises and... That's right. If there are multiple reports of accidental injuries, previous reports of injuries, if the caregiver is acting inappropriate about the injury, Mm -hmm. either over-attentive or very blasé about Mm -hmm. it, Mm -hmm. if the caregiver says, I have no idea how this happened, or... Signs of uh, malnutrition. uh, If the the caregiver is just hostile, uncooperative altogether. So right. those are just some of the, you know, some of the more common ones. So let's talk about the worst hypothetical. So if you're resuscitating a child in the trauma bay, I say bring their family in while you are resuscitating. Even if you know the resuscitation is not going well, uh, even if you know the resuscitation is going to end in uh, the death of the child, um, preferably if you can bring them in before the child dies. Um, I would say I advocate for doing that. Um, We know that for lay people, when someone is pink and warm, then that indicates that they are alive uh, to a lay person. And so if they can kiss them and hold their hand and say goodbye to them, even if the reason that they are pink and warm is because we are doing compressions, Mm -hmm. um, it's really, really important for their grief if they can do it at that time. So if you can give them those few moments to do that, I say, please do that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then let them be there in the trauma bay for that. The evidence shows that the family will cooperate with the ground rules that you give them. Um, they have to have a family facilitator to be there with them. This is American Heart. This yeah. is the um, Society for Trauma Surgeons. This is the American Academy of Pediatrics. Um, there's a whole list of... Uh, of professional organizations that support family presence at the bedside. If you'd like to hear more about it to the listeners that are tuned in right now, um, please check out episode 12 of the Keyword Podcast, The Gift of Being There, which is all about family presence at the bedside. We go into great detail about the importance of this or or our um, championing of this particular uh, idea in hospitals. So aside from bringing the family in, what happens after this child dies? Then the family becomes your patient, and you are caring for the family. Um, You're providing them time. You are answering their questions. Uh, Again, they're going to be in shock. You're going to answer the same question over and over and over again. They're going to be trying to make sense of this nonsensical thing that has just happened in their life. A trauma is not something that they anticipate. This is something that happens. you know, it's unexpected, unexpectedly. Thank you. Some other things that, um, sometimes we don't think about, but what we have learned from surveying families is 
please don't let them walk to their car by themselves. Walk them to their car. Mm. And please don't make them pay a parking fee. Mm. Um, other research that we have found is that um, there is a pediatrician who is also the medical director of EMS in Palm Beach County, Florida. His name is Dr. Peter Ann Tevy. Mm-hmm. He has a member of his EMS team call the family and offer condolences the day after a death that they have been involved in. Mm-hmm. Uh, the families really, really appreciate that. Yeah. He goes even further than that, and he has a member of his EMS team in uniform attend the services of this child. These are practices that are evidence-based from research that has been done in surveying families of children who have died, um, these bereaved parents, and uh, this means so, so much to them. So these are a phone call, a parking fee, a walk to a car, uh, funeral attending, that's a big thing. Sending a staff member is a big thing. That's some resources that um, that you're, you know, you're taking the time out of the day to send a staff member. Um, we are all short-staffed. I get that. Um, but this is evidence-based uh, practice from, from bereaved patients or bereaved parents. So those are my recommendations. Those are my suggestions. Some small, one big. This is what we do. Excellent. Well, that is our quick and dirty single episode dedicated to pediatrics, even though there are so many more things we could talk about because of the level of complexity, uh, the wide variety of patients between um, the minute they pop out of the womb to the time they turn 15 years old or 14 years old. Um, But we hope that this provides you with some jumping off place. And at the very least, shows you that this population in particular is very, very complicated and there are a tremendous amount of considerations that have to be taken into account. You're not doing this alone. You have a team with you. You have resources at your fingertips. You have people that you can ask. Um, And it is important to keep your head about you and to treat this patient, um, dare I say it, with the same sort of professional detachment that you try to come at the rest of your patients, but with a consideration and understanding of um, not only how complex they are um, medically, but um, what they mean outside of the hospital um, as this young, hopeful next generation for their family. Once again, very well said. Thank you, Nisa, for this great information. We will see you again next time when we talk about bariatric patients. That's right. Excellent. Talk to you soon. Bye. All right. Bye.